Hi, everyone. Welcome to this event of the Resilience Think Tank. I'm so excited that you're here with me. Today, I think we are attacking one of the topics that is most difficult for us when it comes to navigating change in the workplace, and that is ourselves. How do we get us to make a change even when we know it's the right thing to do? I'd like to start by introducing Amy LaBelle. Amy is the co-founder of LaBelle Winery in New Hampshire, especially notable as only 2% of wineries globally are founded by women. And she's grown this endeavor to two wineries, two event centers, two restaurants, a golf course, and a market. Amy, thank you for joining us. And I'd like to ask you, what's an example of a work change that you made that was a real struggle for you to convince yourself to actually do it? Oh, well, thank you so much for uh, having me today. And uh, thanks for giving me a moment to talk about a big change I made. Um, I guess the most significant and relevant change to today's conversation is that I wasn't always a winemaker or business owner. Uh, originally, I was a lawyer and I practiced law for 16 years. Uh, but when I had the moment, the big epiphany moment, the realization that I really wanted to be a winemaker and open my own event center and winery uh, right here in New England, uh, that wasn't really a practical thought in that moment because I had only been practicing law five years. I had just gotten a really incredible job at a top uh, financial company uh, in the world, Fidelity Investments, and I was uh, in in house counsel for uh, for them. I was there in their legal department, and it was an awesome job. So to have this epiphany and something that was really driving my heart to make this massive change um, was inconvenient in that moment. <laughs> and so that's, <laughs> that's a big change that I had in my life that um, I had to face up and and figure out how to handle. Excellent. Thank you very much. Okay. Mark Ahrens is the founder of 8020 Solutions and has worked with over 1,000 online education businesses and clients, ranging from the New York Times bestselling authors to the United States National Institute of Health and a whole bunch in between. Mark, can you tell us an example of a work change you made that was a real struggle to convince yourself to do it? Absolutely. First, thank you for having me. And I would say this was actually pre-pandemic. I tore my kneecap off of my knee. And it is as painful as it sounds. Wow. And I think I, that's used in torture, right? Like that sounds, <laughs> wow. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, it, it's extremely painful. You know, I'd, I'd never uh, had any kind of major surgery to have anything reattached. And I sent an email to all of my clients and I said, hey, I'm going to be going through this. This is, you know, just the prognosis for how long it's going to take to recover. And I, I basically closed up shop, you know, um, for maybe like six months. And when I started to not just be able to walk again, but to also be able to feel like I could trust myself to work with my clients, I wanted to come up with a way to basically help them to get results without me being in the room. And that was really, really hard because I was used to always being the person that's on call. I've missed flights uh, to be on calls with clients. And I then started to think, how could I productize basically my expertise, put it into an online education model, which I teach my clients to do, but I'd never done it for myself. That was hard. Oh, having to practice what you preach is the worst. Mm. <laughs> okay. Thank you for sharing it. And we're going to dive into it more. 
Groove Singh is an entrepreneur who founded seven companies just recently and been an advisor, a board member, or an investor in dozens of years. He's also a term member at the Council on Foreign Relations. And I have to note, he's a member of a real think tank. So I was pretty excited to get him on our <laughs> Uh, he's also a devoted, devoted husband and dad. And Drew, could you tell me about a time where you had a work change to make that was a real struggle to convince yourself to actually do it? Um, I'd be delighted to. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's it's uh, wonderful to be here. And I will also say that uh, my, my conversations with Dr. G one-on-one are without question the reason I'm here because your insight, your thoughtfulness is uh, second to none. So thank you so much for organizing this and, and for having me. Um, the, the work change uh, that was a real struggle for me was I actually decided, uh, or my wife and I decided together uh, to transplant our family to uh, internationally for a period. Um, we're very lucky. Uh, we, we had the opportunity to spend, um, a few months, uh, in France. And, uh, the reality is that it, it wasn't easy, right? You know, I'm, I'm, as Deborah mentioned, I'm involved in a few companies, um, where I'm leading them. And while much of what I do is remote or remote first, the reality is that we all have norms. We have systems. My kids that would need to go to school there. It's just it's a big lift and a lot of work for everybody involved. We have um, time zones, like <laughs> different time zone, exactly. And you know, when you're going for three months, it's, it's this isn't a vacation. This is, and to use a, a phrase which uh, uh, Dr. G came up with is, it was a location sabbatical. That's what it was. Doing the exact same thing just over there, and you know is as glorious as that sounds in some ways, it's also, uh, I'd argue, a little more work than you even would conceive it to be, as most things are in life. Until you start doing it, you realize it's a bit more. Um, and so, so that, that was a challenge. And then, you know, how to convince myself to do it. We'll, we'll be talking a bit more about some of those practices uh, uh, later today. But that was, that was one big leap I took. That is a big leap. Okay. So those are some excellent examples of changes that we can all see for different reasons. So Amy, I'm going to come back to you. Thinking about all the changes you've made in your life, but I really am very interested in lawyer to business owner, especially someone who went from um, theatrical professional to medical school. So I made a similar pivot that made people's heads spin. I wondered if you could talk about two things. What do you do when you're evaluating a potential change to decide if it's the right thing? And then if you decide it's a good idea, how do you motivate yourself to actually do it? So um, in terms of evaluating uh, the thought process that was, oh, I, you know, I've had my epiphany. I can't wait to run toward this dream of mine. I, you know, I felt it so deep in my heart and my soul and my spirit. And I was on vacation when this happened. I was not in wine country. I was in Nova Scotia, Canada. And I happened into this tiny little winery on the side of the road there that caused me to have this epiphany or this life moment. Um, and I, I'm very, very grateful that I didn't ignore that moment. And I think that's just, that's one little point that that I wanna make sure gets in here. And that is that I had a calling deep in my heart, something in my gut was telling me, you know, head this direction. And I think it's very easy, maybe especially as a woman to say, oh, that's so silly. 
you know, I went to law school. I still had $103,000 in law school debt at that time. I had just gotten this incredible job in-house um, at Fidelity and not and none of what I was thinking in my heart was practical. So I think it would have been very easy in that moment to have pushed it down and to have said, that's silly, forget it, stay the course, do what you're supposed to do, keep your marching orders in gear, you know what I mean? Um, but I think I'm very grateful that I didn't do that. I said, you know, let, let me listen to this voice inside me and let me expand on it a bit. And so how did I evaluate whether it was um, a good direction to go? Well, uh, I was a business lawyer, I was a mergers and acquisitions attorney. And so my first instinct was to lean into what I knew which was writing a business plan. So I immediately, and I mean, like on the back of a map on that vacation in the car, started writing a business plan. Um, just kind of like test it out with the empirical data that I that I knew. So what do I know? And let's write that down, let's, let's develop a plan. I think that when you have a big idea for change or something that's going to change or shift your life, you have to develop a massive plan right in that moment. You can't wait. You can't say, what if, what if, you can't get 17 people's opinions on it. You've got to act. And I think action will always trump passivity in the in this regard. So I started writing that business plan to see if I could make the numbers work, to see if I could make the plan work. And that just got me more and more excited about all the questions that it was opening up. And then starting to answer those questions is how I ultimately developed the full plan. Never mind that I didn't know how to make wine. That was just a tiny detail. <laughs> I want to use that as a reminder to me to ask everybody who's listening to jot down any questions that you have as we have these conversations. We're going to get to a chunky section for Q&A. So whatever questions are coming up for you, put them in the chat and we will get to them. Amy, did other people in your world push back on this idea as not practical? What about this great job you just got, you just told me about that you've been offered or that you took? Everyone pushed back on this idea. Every person I know, except for one person, my best friend, who um, I happen to be having dinner with tonight. So I'll be, be sure to remind her about how awesomely supportive she was at this time, because everybody said I was nuts and you have a great job. And what are you thinking? And you worked so hard for your law degree, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but my one friend said to me, uh, you can do anything you want to do and you're going to be fine uh, and I'll support you. Now, of course, you don't need anybody's support but your own. You you just need to lean into what you believe about yourself. And if you know that you can do the work that you need to do to get where you want to be, um, that's all you really need, isn't it? I agree. I have one more question. For strategies, when you were hearing a lot of objections and concerns, you know, genuine concerns, were there was there anything in particular that you did or said or went back to to strengthen your own resolve to make this change? Yes, it for me, it always comes back to educating myself first and making sure that I know my subject matter so well, whether it was, you know, convincing the people who loved me or in my life that it, this was an okay plan, which was important, or whether down the road, you think about uh, five years down the road from this plan, uh, I was trying to convince banks to give me the loans, the, the money to do this plan. I needed $5.3 million to build the 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 flagship winery uh, in 2010, which was a really rough time to ask for that kind of money because the financial markets were in turmoil. Um, in any event, four of four banks told me no 
before I got finally the fifth bank to tell me yes. And education and, and education was really the key to me earning finally that fifth bank's trust and, and support. And it, it wasn't, it was, yes, it was educating them on the business plan that I had in mind, but it was more uh, turning the fingers back at myself, pointing back at myself and saying, what have I not showed them or convinced them with in my own plan? What have I not told them that they haven't yet seen it the way I see it? Because I knew I could make it a success because I knew how hard I would work. So I, I turned the fingers back in. I rewrote the business plan. I re-educated myself and everybody around me on how it could work. And then I finally got the loan. That's excellent. Thank you. I appreciate that. Hey, Drew, you not only made this big change where you picked up your family and moved to another country to keep working and going to school, not for vacation. You also advise and work with a lot of different businesses uh, over your career. And I would imagine a large percentage more have come to you to say, hey, would you advise us? Would you invest in us? Would you be on our board? Would you be a part of this? How do you evaluate work opportunities to decide if it's a change you should make? And then how do you overcome your own objections when you decide you want to move forward? It's a great question. I think you know, for, for me, it's, first of all, it's very much a work in progress. Um, I started my career in consulting um, at McKinsey. Um, I founded my first business uh, almost 15 years ago now. And um, I, I joke and say the, the only good decision, the only decision I'm positive I made with that was a good decision was starting when I was 24. Um, that, that was definitely a good decision. Um, but, you know, I think as opportunities have been, and, you know, I think, if you're looking for them, there's, there's no shortage of opportunities, right? There's no shortage of things to be curious about and how do you decide or, or, you know, especially if you put yourself out there and, you know, have what lovely conversations like this and, you know, meet people, um, they're interesting opportunities. So then how do you, what I heard your question is, right? Is like, how do you know which ones to double down on and release the, you know, fight the inertia that's required to make a material change in how you're living your life versus the rest that you just kind of let pass you by. And I think for, for me, I've been really working on honing what's my personal checklist or like, what are the things where you got to check, you know, 19 out of 20 of the boxes. Um, when I started the process um, several years ago, I didn't even think of the concept of having, you know, my checklist. And I think if you look at someone, a firm who's either just an investor or someone who's, you know, doing something for a job, the checklist is shorter because you align that based off of what, you know, what, what, what are the criteria which make this good for the company? Or what are the criteria that make this good for the organization? Or the criteria that makes a good investment? And I think similarly, I personally find myself, um, I'd say annually, revisiting what have I learned? What are the criteria that make something good for me and work for me personally? Um, and at the end of the day, make me feel fulfilled in, in what I'm doing and feel like I'm growing and feel like I'm um, marching forward in, in the way I write my goals for myself is I say, you know, in, in this chapter of my life, my goal is to X. It's too big to say what's, you know, what's your goal for your life, right? I, I hope to live for a long time. But to yeah, say, what do you want to be when you grow up? 
It's exactly. too big. <laughs> but but look, for this chapter, if some if so you had the qualifier of, you know, well, in this chapter of my life, my goal is to do X, makes it a little more manageable. And also more precise, I think. So maybe you've actually answered my the second part of my question by telling me how you evaluate it. It seems to me that if you found an opportunity to check 19 of your 20 boxes, motivating yourself to get over the inertia, as you put it, that it takes to make a change would be a lot easier because it's so aligned with your own goals. Have you still found that there's some inertia or does meeting those criteria solve it for you? It's a great question. I, the inertia, the way I personally overcome inertia, I think, you know, it, once at this point I have, I feel like my criteria is sufficiently dialed in at saying no's harder because you see some that check 15. You're like, this is still really good. <laughs> it's still really good. And I'm so really excited about this. And I want to do it. So it's actually hard to say no sometimes. Um, but for me, when, when I am, you know, trying to overcome inertia, like as an example, if I say, I, I'd like to come up with an idea myself, I'll use that as an example, right? Like that's something where it's not just about living life, but actually trying to put yourself on a timetable to come up with an idea what social commitment is something which has actually been really helpful for me and it need not be social commitment to like faceless social commitment you know like posting on social media or like you know just announcing at a a thanksgiving dinner and then never bringing it up again right but like what i try to do is actually think about who are the people that i admire and i respect the most and i am so grateful to have time with and get advice from or family members I care about particularly, and I love getting advice from and just chatting with them about things and that are supportive. And I will go to them and tell them the thing that I'm going to do in a timeline by which I'm going to do it. And I'll admit the fact that I'm terrified by this. But here's what I'm thinking about doing to try to get from A to B. What do you think? And it's amazing how if you go to the people you admire the most and respect the most and are extraordinarily vulnerable about a thing, the thing you feel you fear, both how supportive they'll be of you, but then also how once you kind of, you know, once once that's out of the box, then you gotta you gotta you gotta do it too. So now you're accountable. <laughs> Only go that. to the people you care about impressing the most and care about the most. <laughs> and, yeah. And expose yourself. <laughs> right. And if you find yourself unwilling to do that, it might be a sign that you don't actually, you're not ready to make this change. That's right. Okay, Mark, you have, I think, a different struggle. And this is from not knowing, this is just my guess, given the fact that you have actually helped thousands of businesses. And so I would imagine that to do that, you've had to scale, especially since pandemic and the story you told us, you've had to scale and hone your processes. For helping people because if you have five clients you can have five different templates and really do bespoke but if you want to be able to help hundreds of companies or thousands of companies just like you know amy wants to help hundreds of thousands of customers to have an experience you have to have a couple of paths that people feed into when you think a path could be better or should be different if you're going to change a, a funnel to use a business word or if you're going to change a way of doing business how do you evaluate if that's the right thing to do and then how do you get yourself to do it i love this question and there's two ways there's the art and then there's the science if we're going to talk about the science then within marketing there's a framework that's called the ice framework 
uh, and it stands for impact, confidence, and ease. And you can easily, for any kind of marketing dis- marketing decision or business decision, then do a sliding scale of like one to five for each of those. And then you can slot in all of the different projects or decisions that you're thinking about doing to be able to get that done. But it doesn't Say it handle again. the yes. impact, ice, impact, confidence, and ease. Thank you. And it's really helpful for just being able to shortlist whether you're operating at like the strategic level or tactical level to be able to see what the ideas are. And then to also even collect feedback from others as well uh, if you're working within the context of a team. However, it doesn't handle the art. For the art, I like to think about, this might sound a little bit like a mushy, mushy, like gooey, gooey, but we have to be able to determine this internal compass. And I really discovered that uh, through something that you have a lot of experience with, which is improvisational acting. And I remember signing up for my first improv class and I was completely terrified. I, I am not the, let me hop out in front of stage and like talk to people. But by the end of the two and a half hour class, I felt something between terror and like disgust. Like I did not enjoy the experience at all. And that became actually the signal for me to actually stick with it because I wanted to find out more about why it was that I was actually even having this internal experience. And I think that's a little bit of the art. Sometimes we'll get an internal signal and it should be like a, oh, hell yes, we're just going to move towards that. But sometimes we also need to listen to what's the big no that we're feeling, because that's a sign of the resistance, the edge of our comfort zone for us to be able to step into the growth zone. I think that I just have to feel like as a doctor, I have to point out that's a brilliant strategy when you're educating yourself. Don't do it in relationship. (laughs) Someone fills you with horror and disgust. Step away. Okay. Anyway. So, Mark, when you when you find that, when you talk a little bit more about that internal alignment, I get that you learned it in improv, and I that I adore that, and I can feel that in me too. But when you're trying to figure out that internal alignment, Drew has 19, 20 criteria, and that feels like more of the science. But what do you do with that internal alignment piece? I like to think of our journeys through life um, through the lens of, uh, I think it's Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey, you know, and it's like, we're all, we've got the outer journey, you know, that everybody else can see. And then we also have the inner journey to be able to get to the end of the journey. There's always a transformation that the hero has to go through. There's a dragon that needs to be slain. And so what is the dragon that I might need to slay and who do I become in the process? of doing that? Will I transform? Will I ultimately become a better person if I pursue this? And if the answer is yes, then that's usually a clear signal for me to be able to know that it's in alignment with my internal values. And this is an incredible transformation of how we look at business. Because 25 years ago, somebody would have said to you, I think a lot of people, oh, that's about your personal journey. That doesn't have anything to do with your job. Right? Your job is just your job and it's what you do to provide for your needs or the people that you care about in your life. And this connection, especially for leaders, this connection to who we are trying to be in the world, how we are trying to be in the world, 
actually fuels a lot more success. And that alignment is, it, as it turns out, it's the key to being resilient when things don't go well. You know why you're trying. And to Drew's point, you know how to annually or whatever it is, reevaluate to make sure that for this chapter, you're still headed in the direction that you mean to be. Okay, everybody put your questions in the chat, please. And while you're doing that, I'm going to ask, and I'm going to start, I'd like everybody to answer this question briefly, but I'm going to start, Amy, with you. Would you talk for just a couple, just a little while, maybe like 30 or 60 seconds, but would you be able to tell me when you're thinking about a change and you've committed to it, any behavior change, and I know that it doesn't sound like buying a business is a behavior change, but or start founding a business is a behavior change, but it is, right? Just like deciding, oh, I'm going to do my accounting twice a month instead of once a month is a behavior change. When you've started it, and then you find yourself losing steam a little bit. Your own doubts are creeping in, like Mark talked about, maybe the dragon that you have to play is, is other people's voices are getting louder than your own voice, or there's something where you find yourself pulling away from it and you don't have the, all the people you told about that you're suggested who are gonna be like, hey, where are you at with this? You told me you were doing this. What is something that you've done that's helped you to get back on track? Thank you. That's an important question um, because motivation is it only lasts you so long, right? Um, motivation fleets. You need a plan, and I'm I'm a big believer in a plan. We've talked about that already, and I and I like to write down a plan. But uh, those micro or those those smaller changes, you know, um, if you can call leaving a massive law career and opening a business a small micro change. Um, we can't. But, I'm sorry. But, <laughs> but it kind of is in relation to your entire life plan, right? So I've always been a person who is very clear on what my my goal in life, my goals in life are, or what I want to achieve, um, what what type of um, family I want, what type of friendships I want, uh, and I go so far as to write out kind of, you know not detailed multi-page plans for those things, but, you know, kind of bubbles um, of, of what type of life I want. And then a layer down, you know, what, what are my family goals? What does my family want to achieve? How do I want to be in the world? How do I want to impact my community? How do I want to participate in society? How do I want to make the world better? These are all big questions. And I find that if I can connect my micro goals or my, my life shift to those larger picture goals, it helps me keep motivated and moving forward because I can see how it fits into the bigger plan for myself or my family or my community. Does that make sense? It does. So what I'm hearing you say is that when you have a smaller change that you're making, you make sure that you're clear about the why. Yes. Right. Said okay. so well and succinctly, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's really helpful. Okay, Mark. How about you? When you when your motivation starts to fade, what do you do? So I like to go to the opposite end of the spectrum. You know, it's it's extremely helpful, and I always try to do this to think about the macro. Like, okay, what's the long term goal that I'm working towards? But I also like to think about removing all of the micro barriers to taking action. And one model that I really really enjoy is um, B.J. Fogg's uh, Tiny Habits. Uh, he has a book of the same name. 
where he has this behavior map that basically stands for uh, motivation, ability, and prompts. And usually we're thinking, oh, we need to increase motivation to be able to get stuff done. But okay, well, what do you do when motivation is taken off the uh, table and you're getting the prompt to take action? Then that leaves ability. And so for you to be able to have, um, be able to architect your own behavior change, make it easier to actually take action. And so simplify the actions, break it down into super, super tiny parts uh, so that you can keep taking micro steps uh, towards the goal. I really like this because we haven't really talked about changes you don't want to make, but you have to make. Uh, I think a lot about my mom's got a terminal diagnosis and she lived 500 miles from me and my kids and I'm an only child and also a doctor and right. Like, so I really needed to be involved. I wanted nothing to do with this change. I wasn't at all motivated to evaluate hospice, figure out what the right steps, next steps were, but I did have the ability and I couldn't get away from the prompt. So it, it sounds like what you're saying is, and that's when you said, when motivation disappears, I realized not only that sometimes you have a great idea, but your motivation fades. Like, oh, I really want to learn to row. And so I'm super motivated at first, but then, oh, it's kind of a pain to go down to, you know, find a boathouse and it's expensive and I have to drive there and remember the right clothes and whatever. Sometimes our motivation is absent because we hate the thing we're navigating, but we it's unavoidable. So, okay, you basically, you need, you need two out of three, right? Motivation, ability, and trust. You need at least two out of three. Well, he says that we have to have at least like a threshold level for like each of them. Otherwise the behavior does not occur, you know? And so if we, we think about it in terms of uh, levels, like we need just enough. And so if motivation is way lower, then we also need to make the ability to do it way simpler uh, because the prompt is probably not going to change. Like the thing that we have to do it is the thing that we have to do. And so then the strategy then becomes, how do you simplify? How do you make it easier instead of how do you push through, then how do you actually move through this with ease? And so an example is, and I did, by the way, consider learning to row for about a minute and a half, but I could remove a micro barrier by leaving clothes I could do it in, in my car. So if I was mm -hmm. out and I'd finished work, I wouldn't have the barrier of having to come home to grab it. So I think we're all familiar with putting a hook for our keys by the front door of removing micro barriers to the frustrations we have. So that's a, a great way to think about increasing ability. Hey, Drew, what do you do if your motivation is starting to fall off for a project? I have uh, my, my, my approach is a little bit odd in that I really, I first just rest, as crazy as that sounds. Like to the, and look, obviously, let's put aside those high stress moments, right? Because sometimes your motivation fades and like, you know, if you're, if you're, going, it's, it's like if you're going through hell, sometimes the only way out is to keep going, right? So let's put those aside because everyone knows there's only one, one way to deal with those things. But <clears throat> I, I try to rest and stop working, right? I think so much, especially when you're pushing yourself emotionally and psychologically to be outside of your comfort zone and like taking real risks, you've got to have, um, and, and, and you know, what, what comes with that is there's, there's two different kind of ends of the spectrum. Sometimes you find yourself in a flow state where like, you know, you just keep going and it's unbelievable and everything's working and you're feeling such power and energy. But then for every moment like that, 
there's some moments at the other end of the spectrum where like, you can barely get yourself to, you know, do the simplest of tasks because you're so drained and so exhausted. And my approach has been, um, if I'm feeling on the worst end of that spectrum, to rest, to do as little work as I possibly can. And um, sleep it off and try to get to the other side of it. Um, and you can't force it. At least I can't. I can't force myself. Uh, but on the flip side of it, when I find myself on the other end of the spectrum, to squeeze every drop of juice that I possibly can out of that orange. Um, because I know the pendulum is going to swing the other way. And look, you know, if I, if I find myself, and this has happened to me before, right? No question. I've, I've you know, entered into a bad partnership or, you know, been a part of an organization. I'm like, oh my God, how did I get myself into this? And that's when I find myself, when I found myself, you know, no matter how much I slept or how much time I tried to take away, I still had, you know, the, the Sunday scaries on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday um, mornings. <laughs> uh, that's not a good sign, right? And to me, you got to listen, right? That's a sign that there's something misaligned. And I'll tell you, it's from that moment and that that one experience I had where there's one, and I won't name the organization, an entirely dud organization that I helped co-found. And the, the organization I'm doing, I'm doing okay, but I just had a, a, a relationship with a co-founder who was a decent enough human being, but it just wasn't serving me. Um, that, uh, you know, of my, you know, my, my, my uh, made up 19 or 20 point checklist, right? I probably got six of my points from there in this metaphor I'm using, right? <laughs> six of the points were, were learned from that one uh, uh, life experience itself. So, uh, and then I found a way to get out of it very courteously. And, you know, it's, as, as we've all been through this in life is once you decide to move on from something, it's amazing um, how, even though if it's a six month process to move on, the stress gets released the moment you say, I'm going to be moving on. And it, all of a sudden, the next six months become incredibly, incredibly tolerable. It's an excellent reminder that a lack in motivation, it isn't the only answer when your motivation starts to fade to just try harder or work harder. You said two really important things to me. One is sometimes the answer is rest. Your motivation is fading because your energy is fading and you need to recharge. And the other thing is sometimes your motivation fades because the situation, the goal is no longer the right goal. And it's a sign that you have to pay attention to. Here, we have another question and I'm gonna to come to you first because I know this is something you've done about your trip to France. When you have, and I don't know whose idea the, the location sabbatical was, but when you have a great idea, how do you bring that to your partner? And Amy, if we have time, I may come to you too because I know that your husband co-founded the winery with you. And I know you said you had your idea on vacation. so. How do you bring this to your partner and say, hey, so I've got a great idea. Come along for the ride. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a great question. My, um, my wife and I have actually worked together um, on a company too once before. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's something where um, in our relationship, of course, every relationship is, is unique we have a very low barrier for sharing. Like what's amazing is like, you know, similar to kind of uh, the second one of us has an idea, it just gets thrown out. Th thrown out, not as in thrown out, as in disregarded, <laughs> thrown out as in openly shared. And 
you know, I think it's nice because then trying to find the the weed from the chaff, it's also attractive. It's, it's fun to see like how the other person takes it. Is that a good idea? Is it bad? How do they react to it? And obviously with the one, the things that we as a family um, end up backing on quickly uh, and, and, you know, with high energy are the ones where the two of us very quickly go from zero to 60 on the same idea. Um, and we're lucky in that we tend to have a high level overlap, but in, in most areas, not all areas. And, you know, in, in those areas that we do have a high overlap, we find ourselves moving quickly and doing lots of things in our interests in the areas that we don't have a high overlap, a bit more of a log jam, but that's fine. You know, and, and, and I think that's a natural thing. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. I think that serves us too. Amy, were you, was your husband with you on that vacation? No, he wasn't. I didn't know him then. And so I, the, the original uh, inspiration for the winery and all of the, the first four or five work for four or five years working toward building the winery and building my knowledge, getting my wine degree, uh, you know, working toward that, but still working my day job as a lawyer um, was on my own. And when I met poor Caesar, um, I <laughs> explained to him the ultimate dream uh, to build this place where community would gather and where we'd make a real impact in our in our community, in our state, in our region. Um, and he was immediately on board. Um, even though we were dating, he didn't kind of run away and say, this woman is crazy. Uh, we've always been very similarly aligned in in our business goals, which has been a, been a great bonus and uh, benefit for us. I'm really glad. Okay, I wanna just point out a few things for people who are watching that I've really taken from this conversation and strategies that we can pull into our own decision-making, our own experiences with change. Amy, you really talked about the power of educating yourself and getting into the weeds when you have a change to evaluate. I really wanna point out that you reminded us to know, to lean into our own expertise, to not first do all the research, but first write down everything you know about this. Whatever the change is, you may not know everything you need to know. Amy didn't even know how to make wine, but you do know yourself, you know your circumstance, your situation, what your priorities are. And that brings us to something that both Mark and Drew touched on a lot, which is aligning your priorities with your choices. I find in my work when I talk to people about setting boundaries that very powerful leaders almost universally say they're bad at setting boundaries because they think that setting boundaries means saying no. But the truth is, every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. When you say yes, I'll take that opportunity, you may be saying, I'll say no to feeling flush in my bank balance right now, or I'm saying no to sleep, or to exercise, or to the time off I was going to take, or the rest I might've gotten. Every time you say yes, you're saying no to something. And every time you say no, because you're saying yes to something else. Setting boundaries is about aligning your yeses with your actual priorities, the things that really do matter the most to you. And everybody's pointed out in this conversation the value of that in helping yourself make the best changes you can make given what you know at the time and actually making the change, not just thinking, oh, that would be cool. I like that idea. I wonder if I should have done that. Amy really tried to impress on us the importance of not ignoring that calling or that voice inside of you just in an effort to be practical. Sheila pointed out something really important in the chat, and that is 
we do have to have enough money to pay for housing and food and healthcare. There's, it's not that change is without compromise. And there's an important conversation, and Sheila, I think I'm going to use it as the subject of a net, another think tank in the future about making compromise and deciding how you straddle that line. Because none of leadership, our leadership of ourselves or other people is within a vacuum, but ignoring what we genuinely want, ignoring our actual goals and needs or desires in each chapter of our life doesn't make us stronger leaders. It doesn't make us, maybe makes us a little more puritanical because we have that idea in our Puritan heritage in this country that when we ignore joy and we set aside our dreams, we're somehow, that's somehow righteous or admirable. But I think we are learning as a society that that is not. Before we leave, I'd like to ask each of you a question, a kind of delightful question, I think. And um, Mark, if it's okay, I'd like to start with you. When you do make a change that was hard for you to make in any aspect of your life, what's something you do to reward yourself for that? Mm. There are the big rewards, and then there are also the smaller ones. Um, after hitting some goals uh, one quarter, um, I took a trip to Turks and Caicos for two yeah. weeks, which is fantastic. Would recommend. Would do it again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just really nice like oh i could i could go on a tangent and then there are also like the micro rewards because hey maybe we don't can't all just like hop up and go to turks because we actually have work and stuff to do um and it could be as simple as going to your favorite restaurant yeah so you reward yourself with experiences yes nice okay amy how about you yeah i'm with mark exactly uh if it's if it's a small thing it's ice cream <laughs> or you know our favorite ice cream place or uh, we take the kids yeah I have two boys uh, we'll take the kids to our favorite ice cream shop and celebrate uh, or we'll go out to a really nice dinner and celebrate to a restaurant we've been wanting to try but if it's a bigger thing we are definitely traveling as a family to you know celebrate our goal because my whole family makes sacrifices to make all this work and we we want to celebrate those together as well true besides moving to France what are the things you do I think so first off, I was absolutely terrible at this for the first 10 years. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't let anyone celebrate anything because I said uh, it's not done yet. We're not done. I knew it. That's what we do, right? Yeah. And um, I realized that, you know, the the biggest loser was, was me and everyone around me because, um, you know, it, it's just a missed opportunity. Like it's okay. Like just celebrating a moment doesn't mean you're letting up on the gas. Celebrating a moment just means you're celebrating a moment, right? Like pendulum's gonna swing. Like you're gonna have ups and downs. It's gonna be a roller coaster. And when you're up, you gotta enjoy being up. And um, so I do a couple of things. Uh, first off, just really, anytime there's a goal, anytime we do something well, like I will go out of my way to celebrate with everyone around me. I'll celebrate with the team. I'll make sure the whole team gets, and it could be. Uh, a, a bobble it could be something they'll remember you know i got our whole company uh portals like you know i'll just do i'll do things which like people will remember portals like to another universe what is that no, <laughs> that was like the it's like you know like the the like facebook had that the camera which would follow you around oh your room. yeah 
Yeah, that's creepy. But, okay, nice gift. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, but it was like a kind of a fun thing. So you could hang out. Anyways, you got it's like a, it's a thing which no one would ever buy for themselves, but it's actually totally. kind of a cool gimmick because you like put it in a room. You can talk to your mom, or you can talk to you. You can talk to whoever. Anyways, awesome. So um, now I've turned into someone who like finds an excuse to celebrate stuff and be really open about what we'll do if we achieve something, and then and then do it. And for me personally, it's a very silly thing, but. I let myself take breaks in the middle of the work day and play hooky. And it's like the greatest feeling in the world. I'll go like play tennis for an hour. And like, I like 1 PM on a Tuesday and it feels fantastic. It feels <laughs> like you're getting away with something, right? Like a study hall. Yeah. There's going to be like, Mr. Singh, should you be in class? It's exactly right. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting away with something. It's perfectly, I feel like I'm like treating myself. Right. So it's a little thing. Well, I will one up your silliness. In my family, and this started when the boys were really little and I needed their buy-in to do a big thing around the house, like a big clean or something, not just stuff that were their normal chores. And now I do it even um, I go play laser tag with total strangers. Like, I mean, if I can bring one or more of my boys, I will. But now that they're busy and older and whatever, I go play laser tag with strangers. It's so cathartic. It's amazing. And my kids just know to laser tag that when my boys were really little, the littlest was totally into it, you know, wanted MVP every round. And he was on the other team and it's dark and it's crazy and there's lights and sound and, you know, fake bombs going off kind of things in these space alien feelings. And my littlest yells, mommy, where are you? And I think he's scared. So I say right here, honey. And he goes, thank you. And I go, bam, 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 bam. And I've never been more dismayed and at the same time more proud of one of my kids in this exact same moment. Thank you all so much for joining us today. I'm really glad we got to have this conversation. I learned a lot and I hope that all of you did as well. Have a wonderful time and we will see you, I hope, June 27th when we talk about uncertainty in the workplace and how we navigate it. Bye, everybody.